Hello and welcome to another episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by our amazing sponsors. Seeds here now, best seed bank in the game, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Get all the hottest breeders, the latest drops, get all that fire you need right now. You know where to hit them up. And we'd like to welcome onto the show, Coppet Biological Systems. These guys have a wide range of products to help keep your garden pumping, 100% activity, full of life. Whether you need predator mites, predator bugs of any sort, microbial powders, or heck, even just some artificial feed to keep your beneficial mites alive, keep boosting those numbers, hit up Coppet Systems. They're amazing, international, and we're appreciative to have them on the show. And as always, a big shout out to the Patreon gang. These guys are the lifeblood of the show, helping to make it happen as always. If you want access to additional content, early episode access, and a few other little goodies, be sure to check it out. Patreon.com forward slash the podcast. On this episode, we are extremely, extremely, extremely grateful to have our friend from India, Irizing, come on and give us the lowdown on what's happening in this part of the world, that land race love magic, and what we can look forward to in the future. This is a two-parter, four hours, buckling gang. Let's get into it. All right, all right, all right. A big thank you and welcome to the one and only, the land race legend himself, Irizan of Indian Land Race Exchange. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much uh, for having me on the show. I'm really grateful to be here today. Awesome, my friend. The question we like to ask people first off, what have you been smoking on recently? I've been smoking on some Dosh Valley resin. Uh, it's been cured for a little over three months. Uh, has a really nice uh, zesty citrusy flavor on the front and, you know, background is all really floral. So it's a very nice combination. The effects are really mild. So, I mean, it really does not really takes you out of your working groove. So you can, you know, get on with your work, you know, go about doing what you want to do in the day. And at the same time, not feel like you want to, you know, indulge in smoking, you know, get interrupted in between your curriculum. So I think it's a great smoke to, you know, start the morning for anyone. Oh, that sounds lovely. You've got me interested. You said it was cured for three months. How do you find as a hash cures it affects the flavor and potency? Oh, it, it definitely does that. I mean, especially, I mean, if you're going to talk about the resin that was hand rubbed from the plant. So, I mean, uh, we have to understand, I mean, <clears throat> if uh, that uh, resin is produced in a much different way, then it's going to have certain properties which will be very different from your conventional uh, hash, you know, that is made by water or is made by, you know, dry sieving. So I'm going to just elaborate a little bit on that. So what happens when you're, uh, you know, hand rubbing the plant is that you're also taking out some of the plant matter and a lot of water content. Okay, so your final hash is basically a, a part, uh, uh, like a ball of a lot of resin, which is stuck around, you know, some impurities like dust and, you know, plant matter, which is binding it together. It's binding the lipids together. And then there's a lot of water content as, at the same time. Now, if you attempt to smoke something like that at the same time, I mean, if you smell it, it's going to smell amazing. The smell's going to be amazing, okay? But when you try to smoke it, you will not feel any flavor at all. It's going to be very harsh, 
uh, your nostrils gonna burn like you know somebody put chili powder in there and it's going to hurt your throat as well and that, that's because of the water that is present in it you know so when you age it or how you guys say you cure it or uh, there are a few different things happening there the first thing that is happening basically over there is that uh, the decarboxylation of you know the uh, resin the other thing is that uh, the plant matter that is lost in between you know that is going to lose the taste you know that is interfering with the final flavor okay and the third and the very important thing that is happening is that it's losing that water that you know uh, really needs not to be a part of the hash because if that hash is then taken to a humid place you know it's eventually is going to develop uh, you know rot as it's going to have uh, mold in it as we see in a lot of a uh, lot of resin which is not you know aged properly or it's packed in you know polythene right away and you know they don't let it just uh, sit uh, sit out for a while so we see that a lot you know we break we break up pieces and it's all white from inside so you know that kind of tells the story so it's it becomes very important here uh, you know, to cure, to age your hash. And you know, without that, I mean, uh, that hash really is uh, not worth smoking. But just after a few months, uh, it becomes something divine from something which is not worth smoking. So I think that's a big difference. Wow, what a great little rundown on that. And so I guess my little next question on that is, is there a optimum period in your mind for hash? Like, do you think you know, between three and six months is the minimum you'd want to do it, or how do you think about it? Okay, so um, I'm I'm not sh- really sure about that. I mean, I haven't really thought about it in that uh, way. But within our uh, within the circumstances that I'm in, I think three month, uh, three four months works the best because after that, what we usually see is that we see. Uh, I mean, not through testing, I mean, through what we feel subjectively when we smoke it, right? So what we see is that uh, it becomes more sleepy. I mean, uh, the high becomes uh, in a way that, you know, it induces more sleepy feeling instead of more energetic feeling, right? So, and that I probably think is what happening is uh, the THC begins to degrade to CBN uh, at, at a certain point, right? So that that starts to happen because eventually after march it starts to get really hot in india and not everyone you know has the capacity to store their hash and you know sealed uh, ziploc pouches and freezers so by the time it's just uh, you know if when they take it out in january uh, i'm sorry in october and november december and january it sits you know in the village or anywhere in india it's fine because it's still cold and after that, after February, you know, as the heat begins to, you know, surge, uh, I think that it's really not ideal for uh, for people to store the hash here. I mean, unless they have a freezer and they can really, you know, just vacuum seal it. That's a whole different thing. But uh, in India, because of the diversity and the dynamics of the season and the way they play out, because the winter is very cold and, you know, when it's summer, it's so hot. I mean, you cannot imagine, you know, that, there was a winter in the same country at some point. So uh, really temperate kind of, you know, climate overall. So it's uh, three months, four months. I think that that's really what does best in the environment and the circumstances we're in. Yeah, what a, what a fantastic answer. So the next question is, what was your first experience with cannabis? 
Uh, first experience with cannabis is, <clears throat> I mean, this is this is going to be uh, vastly different from you know because I've heard like some of your podcasts before, and you know, uh, people have these really nice stories that yeah, I, my first experience was I went there and I smoked, but it's entirely different for people who belong to places you know where it grows everywhere. So you're just growing up along with this plant as as you grow up, you just see it everywhere. So it's kind of is normal until the society takes hold of you and starts telling you that, you know, uh, it might not be a very good idea if you, you know, start smoking this plant. And, and that really helps in actually propelling a lot of, you know, teenagers towards it because then they become curious and, you know, <laughs> that they really want to smoke it. So um, it's really different in India, you know, uh, because it's everywhere, you know, it's in our worship, it's part of our food. Uh, we use it for the ropes, for shelter, for medicine, even, you know, sometimes when, you know, the cattle get sick, we can feed cannabis plants to the cattle and it pretty much seems to do, you know, well for uh, for for the animals. And one of the things that I've seen for myself is if you uh, let those animals lose and if they're having some, you know, stomach issues or some problem, they go and they munch on the cannabis plants as if they already know, I mean, you know, that this is the medicine. So just... Uh, uh, I mean, the whole perspective is different here. I mean, so uh, we can't really pinpoint or I can't really pinpoint, okay, this was the first time that I said, hey, this is cannabis because it's just part of your daily affair. Like you don't really, uh, you know, realize what was the first time, uh, you know, that uh, you saw people around you because that's, you have people around you and that's just normal. We don't really try to pinpoint those uh, things in the way some other significant things like what was the first time you got your job or what was the first time you went to a beach. So those kind of things could be pinpointed because they're very specific to your uh, you know, experiences. But this is just part of your uh, life. I mean, so it, it's really different, you know, growing uh, around the plant. So I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, uh, tell really a little story. And that would, I think, really help a lot of people understand, you know, how things work here. So uh, we don't have a we don't have a water supply in, uh, you know, in our village. So what we had to do when we were kids, we had to grab a pot in the morning and just run down the hill, you know, get the water. There are some spots where you know, water comes out of the mountain. So you can get the water and you can go about doing your things as well. So we were accompanied with some, uh, you know, uh, elder guys who were around like 25, 27, 19, 20, right? And we were like really kids, seven, eight, nine years old. So we would go there and by the time they're, you know, descending down the mountain, they're uh, rubbing the plants, making the hash as they go down so that once they reach there, before they take the bath, they can smoke and then they can, you know, really freshen up and you know, start their day as we do. So we were like completely unaware of what this plant is or like what is happening, why they're rubbing it and, you know, why they really empty the cigarettes, fill them back up and smoke and get crazy. So this whole thing is a big confusion for us, but we kind of enjoy that. So they would also make us rub those plants because they think we have these small supple hands, you know, because we were kids. So it's it's kind of a myth in India that, you know, if kids rub it, you know, their hands are soft. So they take out like the best hash. I don't necessarily think that's the, think that's the case, but that was it. So we would do that for them and they would take out the hash from our hands. And we have no idea what they're doing and why they're doing it. 
but it was weird so it was like one of the things that i do remember so if i really have to pinpoint i mean experience wise then i would say this was one of those things and it was happening almost every day because just again but that's part of your being i mean as a person and where you live your culture you see it everywhere in the temples you know on the mondays which is the day of the shiva you see a lot of ladies you know uh, just cutting some branches taking it for the worship so it, it, it's a whole different world out here i mean yeah yeah wow interesting and i mean when the uh the slightly older guys would get it off your hands do you remember how they smoked it yeah they would empty the cigarettes and you know they would you know, mix it and fill it up and I, I was pretty much getting disgusted hey man like they i i thought like they're taking you know uh, what do you call um i'm any body waste kind of thing and smoking it's it's kind of weird and disgusting but you know as as you as you grow old and you understand what's really happening and i'm not trying to say you know that not some part of our you know whatever is there on our hand is not getting mixed with the hash it certainly does uh, but again i mean this is it is the way it is i mean in india i mean so yeah yeah of course and so do you remember when you first like can remember feeling high maybe from smoking some hash yourself for example yeah so uh, i started smoking i mean like around 14 15 16 years of age i mean i don't exactly remember like you know uh, you know what was the first time because it's it just happens eventually that some day you know one of your cousins says take one puff and then you know the other time you're with some friends and you know you're also getting drunk and you take a couple of but um as a whole in uttarakhand you know the hash it does not really get you that high right i mean it's it's not uh, cultivated or selected for thc in particularly like some of the other places so it's not that potent and again the domestication part is not very uh, you know prolific as well so it it's really in, uh, uh, nowhere close to some of the other regions in india or somewhere else in asia but i think uh, i was in college when i really remember getting high and that was you know some guy who had like come down from shimla and he had like one of the best residents he thought at that point in time and you know i really got high on that because I was just, uh, you know, hanging out with these guys in their hostel rooms, and all of these guys belonged to Himachal Pradesh, which was really close to Punjab, where I was in college at that point in time. And I'm hanging out, I'm smoking, but mostly it's the cheap stuff that they can share, you know. But every now and then, somebody would come back from the village after the vacation, and he will bring a little bit, like two or three joints of really good hash. And I happened to be lucky to be there. you know at that point in time and i smoked it and you know the effects were just nothing like i had ever experienced i think the intensity was up to a level which uh, really got me thinking that you know this is this is an amazing feeling and i mean whatever i'm feeling right now i mean this is a great state of mind to be in you know and uh, it just really kind of pushed me towards you know scouring for more of it you know how can i find more people you know who would have something like this which is not ordinary but you know something better because now i've gotten to understand hey you know what these are there there is difference it's not just hash there are levels to this hash and there are like many of them so you have to find you know these people who have the best resin which are usually the older guys you know 25 and above 
because they had really graduated smoking by then for over seven to 10 years. So they kind of have found their places where to get the hash on a regular basis and they usually smoke good. But uh, at that point in time, I mean, uh, we were around like 17, 18, 19 year old. So we had an entirely different circle, but every now and then we, we would get something good but not regularly at that point in time. For that, you had to go out and, you know, make friends in other groups and, you know, meet other people. So uh, it's such an amazing thing. I mean, it just pushes you to socialize. I mean, not only that it psychologically puts you in a state of mind where you feel like socializing more, it also has this effect that in order to find it, you have to connect to more people. So it's just amazing how uh, you know, this plant has this intrinsic property of bringing people together I mean, psychologically, physically, and every which way you can imagine. Yeah, of course. And I mean, kind of raises an interesting point you just brought up yourself where people in past episodes have spoke about how, you know, it was kind of a glue. Like when you met someone who was a fellow smoker, it was, you kind of felt like you could trust them a bit. Is that a similar thing in India? Like if you meet a group of people and you say, oh, hey, I'm a smoker, you're a smoker, are you, are you kind of able to make friends easily or is it you still got to kind of prove yourself a bit? It, it really depends, I mean, on you as a person. I mean, you know, what kind of behavior you have. So in India, I mean, behavior is big. So uh, you're, uh, there is a saying in India that your behavior is your <clears throat> introduction. So <clears throat> if you are humble and, you know, you want to learn and, you know, you do some, you run some errands for those, uh, for the other guys, you know, then sure, I mean, they will make you part of your group. And uh, of course, you can then make friends. I mean, I think that's a very subjective kind of uh, issue. You know, it, it, it's, it goes uh, case to case basis, you know what kind of really person you are if you're the kind of person who can connect to other people so people don't really have uh, like a fixed uh, how i should say this uh, a fixed hierarchy or something that you have to have these many years at a certain level to be able to smoke with someone but it's just really uh, depends on you that you know how curious you are and how resourceful you are and you know uh, getting to these places, getting to these people. And then once you do get there, I mean, how good you are in making sure that, you know, you're accepted in these groups and, you know, you can then contribute eventually and become a part of it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's lovely to hear, you know, if you're kind of of good intention and heart, people are accepting. So you mentioned you first experienced the nice hash that was brought back by friends after vacation. Did that stimulate a curiosity in you to kind of think, I've got to go find a consistent source of this for myself? Um, yeah, absolutely it did, but not in terms of like I have to go out and you know find the fields pretty much. But more like that, hey, could I find more people who belong to this place? Because, <clears throat> see, the way our, our thinking evolves is it, it, it happens step by step. I'm sure there are some people, you know, who are really gifted and, you know, uh, I mean, they would really, you know, get to the conclusion very quickly. But for most people, you know, you, you go step by step. And really, when you have uh, such a uh, you know great experience on something like hash, the only thing that really comes to your mind is hey, I can I have to find more people you know who has this kind of stuff like I have to be you know connecting with I ought to be connecting with these people so that I can get access to more of it and see how many how much you know uh, more variety and diversity is out there and you know what all experiences are waiting for me uh, you know in in terms of smoke so uh, 
Yeah, uh, really, I mean, uh, it didn't really, I mean, push me in a way that I would go to the fields because that really pushed, uh, I mean, that push really came later from a, you know, whole different angle, I think, is when I saw someone who was growing it in front of me. Because there was this friend of mine who was growing, uh, and this is in New Delhi around 2015, I think. <clears throat> and he got some seeds from Milana and he grew in his house and, you know, he was able to make hash. So that really pushed me and I was like, okay, I have to now go there and I have to get my own seeds. But I had no idea what was waiting for me once I got there. And once I really got there, it blew my mind and then I collected my mind all over again and rearranged it in a way that, you know, then I was, I knew what I had to do in my life. I pretty much, uh, you know, abandoned my master's at that point in time that I was, uh, I mean, I was in the final year of my master's and I thought, you know what, um, you know, I have to wholeheartedly focus on this thing and preserving this because there are, there were a lot of other uh, things that I was becoming aware of at the same time. I mean, I, I had, uh, at the same time, I had connected to people over Facebook from the United States, a lot of people who are growing and, you know, I, I found out that there's a larger community that exists outside who already knows so much about this plant and, you know, who have done so much work for it. And I, I understood that, you know, I have to play a very important role here by uh, collecting these seeds and making sure that, you know, before this is lost, we collect as diverse of a seed sample, uh, you know, make an archive as diverse as we can. That includes pretty much every possible cannabis variety that we can so that uh, people who are really putting in the work, people, the breeders, you know, who are in a position in legal places to do this kind of work, they can go ahead and they can, you know, work with these varieties, incorporate them into their gene pool and take it further, you know, just like our contribution to, I mean, because you, if you like something and you think this thing helped you in any way, you know, shaping your experiences, or if you feel that, uh, you know, this is something you enjoy, then you uh, inherently have a duty towards promoting that thing. So <clears throat> immediately uh, my, you know, understanding shifted and I knew that I have to go to these other places and I have to collect, connect to more people uh, to, uh, you know, get access to different varieties. And that's what really, I mean, pushed me towards, I mean, going out. But uh, smoking was, I mean, the first step, but it was not really the ultimate step, I would say. I mean. Yeah, okay. Like, what a really interesting recount. So, you mentioned that you kind of had that epiphany moment when you went on a trip to Milano, was it? Can you tell us about that trip? Yeah, that was in Milano. So, it was an amazing, like like I said, uh, uh, the moment I got there, I didn't know what was waiting for me. I was just going, thinking, okay, now I'm going to the village where I'm going to get the hash. So I'll have a lot of options to choose from. And I can have a good time over the week staying there, sampling all these different resins. And at the same time, I was thinking a little bit about, okay, you know, there will be plants as well, so I can get some seeds. I mean, they couldn't be growing their plants without the seeds, right? And this is the time, I mean, when people are not really clicking pictures and they're not really bringing back pictures from Milana. So I pretty much didn't have a very good idea at that point in time that, you know, what I was going to encounter there. So we, we get to the Milana and, you know, we, we just uh, get down. I mean, we're not even close to the village right now. It's about two kilometers away. And we can already see the trails of plants, you know, just leading along the way, you can see. And 
they have all these different uh, expressions which are so beautiful they have colors they have variety of smell from floral citrus woody you know pine something like pine like turpentine so it, it was really nice but that's what we saw at that point in time so we, we liked it we thought oh this is it this is what they make hash of and then you know we go a little further and then we find wow i mean you know there are even better plants in the village and then once we cross the village and we eventually get to places like waichin valley magic valley and you know whaling valley we really understand you know what is the full potential of of the varieties uh you know these people make hash out of and that i think was a profound moment i mean it it it, it, I mean, it has to rearrange your thinking in a way because that was the year after which I, I started going to these different places. Like I went back to my village, first of all, because I realized that, you know, a lot of hunting has to be done there. There are a lot of uh, hotspots, just like, you know, Himachal Pradesh has so many. So I went back there. We did. Uh, you know, a lot of collection out there. We we, we went to, uh, we went near into Tibetan border. We went near into Chinese border. That is uh, at the Mana Pass. We collected samples. And let me tell you, this is uh, this is a different kind of thing. I mean, you cannot go to those places and you know be doing anything around the cannabis plants because the moment you cross uh, cross into those areas, you're under observation all the time from the towers people, uh, Indian Tibetan border police is looking at you at all times what you're doing. So being a local from that place is really going to help you. I mean, because if you're from outside, then you can just forget about it. I mean, you can just forget about going to those places, those are border regions. But then there were other places which were more relaxed and more tourist like like Urgham Valley, where you can just easily act, uh, you know, you have easy access to uh, any tourist, anybody can go there and collect seeds. So we we did all of that and then you know we went back to malana again and we started going to you know uh, started going there at different phases and not just during the flower and that really made uh, a lot of other things apparent to us which uh, which you don't realize in one glimpse or you don't realize even in a week if you just go there in october when you know things are pretty much ripening so and those those things started happening uh, at, at the same time. So, I mean, it was just all coming together from that point for us. And, you know, we were just beginning to understand, you know, what has to be done and how it has to be done, because, you know, we are in North India. So geographically, we're blessed. I mean, we're close to almost every cannabis hotspot, you know, within and we can get there in less than 24 hours. So that really enables us to do all of these things in a way that, you know, uh, I don't think it would be possible for a lot of other people. Yeah, wow, what a powerful little sentiment right there. And I think that, yeah, you're in such a valuable position to be in. Let's wind it back, though, for a minute. That initial trip to Milana, when you got there, what type of variation were you seeing in the plants? Like how many different phenotypes were there and were they really different or still pretty similar for the most part? What did you observe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, because I, I think this is probably the aspect uh, that was most intriguing. I mean, from because, of course, you see a cannabis plant, so you see a few things. You see the physical embodiment you, uh, and you smell it. And, you know, and you look at how beautiful the flowers look or the way it grows. And there's so many other things. Right. But um, 
I, uh, so I, I think what was really interesting to us was the diversity that was present within Milana. I mean, I'm just going to give you a little example. The first field that, you know, I, I was in Weichen Valley and I'm seeing this field. There are about 150 or like 100 plants there. And I can see a lot of different phenotypes, a, a lot of different plants. I mean, just from a casual look, I mean, I don't even have to be an expert. I don't have to be a person who has some, you know, prior understanding of, you know, how plants work and all of these things. You you could just be a normal person, look at it and be astonished and be, you know, uh, just be in awe of, you know, how much variability is present within a very small chunk uh, because they're growing like tens of millions of plants. So if I'm talking about 100, 150 plants field as a sample, I'm just talking about a negligible, you know, proportion. So the variability was just immense. I mean, and it just uh, brings you to a place psychologically that you are bound to think if this one place has so much diversity, just imagine what other places which have vastly different environment, like you go to Equator near Kerala, or you could go to, um, you know, Indo-Tibetan border that is a cold desert, so they have to have something, you know, they have to have something different. They have to, um, you know, uh, the plants there have to grow differently for the reasons that the environment and the cultures are different. So I think that really started a relentless cycle. So, yeah, in the terms of variation, when we talk about in Milana, I think uh, that in itself was one of the things that, you know, got me thinking. And I think uh, that was possibly the best thing I ever did that I thought that if this one place has so much diversity, imagine if I could go to other places and how much more I can get and whether or not I can, you know, preserve it because at the same time, you know, the destruction of the habitat is going on for cannabis because we don't recognize it as a useful plant other than in the Hindu, um, you know, cultural practice and religious practices. So the government doesn't see it as something, you know, which is good. So there's not going to be any preservation from the government side. As a matter of fact, the government has been bent on, you know, taking it out, bent on taking it out. I mean, uh, in, in Kerala, they have like completely devastated, uh, you know, these places used to have cannabis fields in and these people then are forced to go back deeper into the jungles. And what happens is they ultimately fall in the trap of Naxalites. Now, these Naxalites are pretty much running the show for them. And what they do is they provide them protection, of course, from the government, the police. And, you know, they also help them take that stuff, pack it up and, you know, get to the metro cities like New Delhi, Bombay, Pune, you know, where you can really get a price uh, for that. But again, I mean, the, the local farmer is really pretty much getting bent over. I mean, he's not getting any money. So they're making a lot of money and, you know, uh, they're using it for their organization because of the activities they have to carry out with weapons and all of these things. So it, it, it's sad, I mean, the way things are going and the same things happening in Himachal Pradesh where they're really concerned about their, you know, tourism and they have this feeling that the cannabis is somehow is going to, you know, destroy their tourism industry. I mean, it's, it's just nuts when you think about it because most of the people who go to Himachal Pradesh, you know, they go because of the cannabis. But, well, that's how the government sees it. And, you know, the, the there is relentless pressure from all sides, from all sides to just take, uh, I mean, take this thing out of here. And, you know, um, uh, we really feel that if something is not done right now, 
and it might be a little too late. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, earlier on you mentioned that basically you grew up and it was all around you, but then you just mentioned that kind of the government's actually a lot more cracking down on it. Has that been a recent change? What's the government's actual stance on it? And is there any sort of medical program? Yeah, so uh, there are a few things um, and a few ways the government is working. So there are places which are of more interest to government, like Himachal Pradesh and places like Kerala are have been in highlight. I mean, ever since the internet has become more widespread. So government definitely have their eyes, you know, uh, stuck on these two places. And most of the funds that come, I think, from the European Union to eradicate the cannabis in India is directed towards these places. But if I talk about Uttarakhand, the state I belong from, one of the Himalayan states, I, I, I've not seen much of the eradication, uh, you know, process, except for sometimes what they do is they would make small local government bodies and they would, you know, gather people on a Sunday and say, hey, let's go out and, you know, take out all the cannabis plants that you see around the roadside. But that pretty much doesn't make, you know, that doesn't really make the farm population or that uh, the cannabis which is growing around the road in Uttarakhand is not really the part of the plants which would go on to then make hash. Those farms are safe somewhere in the valleys. So it's all good. And the terrorism, I'm sorry, and the tourism is not that much in Uttarakhand, you know, when you compare it to uh, Himachal Pradesh. Uttarakhand is more known for pilgrimage. It's... Um, it has four of the most holiest sites for Hindus, Hindus and for Sikh religion as well. Uh, so a lot of people travel there, but for an entirely different reason, their tourism has a whole different, uh, you know, uh, it, it, is, it happens because of a whole different region because of the pilgrimage. And when you look at Himachal Pradesh or you <clears throat> look at Kerala, their tourism is based around more like recreation and the things you could do there that you could not in the in the other in the other places <clears throat> yeah okay brilliant so just quickly was it before sorry let me re-ask that i kind of asked that really badly <laughs> yeah awesome so i mean i'm interested to know when were you first able to start to link up with other people who were kind of like-minded was it before or after the manila trip which really kind of solidified things in your mind yeah, that, that was really, I mean, because before Milana, I was just connecting to, like I said, people more to acquire like hash. If I could get more of that experience that I liked at that point in time after smoking that. But once I went to Milana, you know, and I came back and I traveled a little bit to other places, like I said, so that I realized, I mean, I could only go to so many places, you know, that I have to have other people. I have to, uh, you know, have friends and people, like-minded people in other states because India is a vast country, right? So it, it's hard to travel, you know, all across the country. So I thought this would be a good idea. But in, in the end, I mean, that didn't really, uh, you know, work out uh, too well because, uh, you know, a lot of things that happened. And, and it's understandable because if you're going to involve, you know, if human beings are going to involve in something, then there is going to be some fuss at some point. So uh, I mean, that was not really a big deal, though. But yeah, after that, I mean, I, I was really, uh, you know, inclined towards uh, getting connected with more people, you know, who are like minded. But after I realized that, hey, you know what, this is not going to work. I mean, I cannot trust somebody who's sitting on Internet because I see that is the trend right now. 
that you know you get hold of someone who's on internet uh let's say he's in you know africa and you say oh you're in africa so you can get me african seeds so, well he can get you african seeds but i mean if that's how you're going to go about it then I think then we're at two different places, uh, you know, thinking about this thing. So I thought, you know, I have to go there. And the other more bigger part was that, you know, that it had started to generate some sort of revenue. And I had a concern that, okay, now I have this revenue coming in from the seeds. So what happens to this? What do I do with this? So eventually you start thinking about it and you understand that, you know, what you have to do, all of your answers lies in one thing, that you have to physically go to these places, you have to meet these people, people, make them understand, you know, what your program is all about, what you're doing and how it's going to help them and, you know, the other community on the other side of the world. And just m make them understand that this is something bigger than you, me and all of us put together, you know and you know get them on board and at the same time they get paid for the seeds that they're giving so that makes you feel great i mean you know that you know not only that you're helping in preservation you're also able to mobilize resources to these people uh, who, would n who could never imagine making see uh, making money of seeds i mean for them it's the resin that makes uh, really the cash now i'm trying to make them understand the value of the seed and you know value of just about everything in that plant that, uh, you know, they may be undermining so far. Yeah, of course, that's a really valuable point to make and it brings on a range of different questions I had, such as, do you think that money is one of the best things you can trade people for the seeds or what are some other things? Because I remember in a previous Bodhi episode, he mentioned a few different things he likes to trade and they all sounded really good, like he'll take some basic medicines sometimes or you know, some colouring in books for the kids and whatnot. What are some things you like to trade? Do you think just money is the best or...? No, I don't think money is the best, uh, at least not for the villages, you know, uh, which are really located in remote areas. So for them, even if I get them some money, I mean, it's more like being on an island with a lot of cash. I mean, you can't really do anything with it, right? So what I feel more appropriate is I really go there and understand their situation. And, you know, we look around at how could we make, you know, life better for these people, but at the same time, not interfere with the culture enough that it begins to morph into something, you know, like a third thing, right? So you have to be very careful about that. So uh, what we do is, uh, you know, mobile phones is uh, one of the, uh, most sought after things amongst the villagers because you know they can hardly get to those places where uh, good mobile phones are available and uh, then bad uh, you know battery backups and uh, LED lights which are charged by you know solar energy and just bunch of batteries and you know clothes for their kids and of course some you know uh, other things that kids would really appreciate and you know you just could not find there but. Still, I mean, uh, being very careful that, you know, we don't bring something that might lead to any detrimental change in their culture or that, you know, uh, could be the beginning of something uh, which is not desirable. Yeah, so I mean, to kind of throw you in the hot seat, what do you think about what Greenhouse Seeds does where they go to these places and trade their crappy European genetics for the land race seeds? Um, I, I, I don't really have an opinion about that. I mean, because uh, 
It, I think I, I've seen the I've seen the documentary. You know that they came in Malara, and it was really nice. It was shot, you know, very professionally. But uh, I don't have a very strong opinion about it. But yeah, I'm, I will say this: that you know, uh, they should not be giving people those seeds. You know, I mean, because you know, then I heard an argument from someone. It was a really stupid argument that somebody said, "Hey, you know, these are like feminized seeds, and you know, it, it doesn't really matter." And, and you just begin to understand, I mean, how short-sighted and myopic, uh, you know, these people, uh, these people's visions are, because they're not thinking even if it's a feminized plant, if it gets pollinated, which it will get pollinated by the males around it, and sudden seeds are going to drop. You can you you can put like an umbrella under those plants and make sure you collect every seeds, and it just takes one seed to fall down, you know, which is like a hybrid, uh, which is hybrid in nature. And I'm not saying that it's going to ruin everything or but you have to understand, I mean, we already have a lot of that. I mean, you know, we have all the hybrid varieties we want and we have these places where it's even legal and you could grow it and it's being sold and it's being taxed. You know, people are making T-shirts and trays and I don't know what not, you know. So let's just, you know, I think that's enough. You know, we don't have to really bring it to places, you know, where it's really not required. Uh, I mean, that, that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean... I'm probably going to go down a wrong path here, but just just as a one isolated question, because we're going to talk about this a lot more later. Have, yeah, no, have, no problem. I mean, no problem. <laughs> have you ever gone to an area, like a regional area, found a patch, and you thought, oh, my God, this is all just like super lemon haze or like something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> so, uh, if you go to Himachal Pradesh, there are certain places uh, you know, you, you could like absolutely tell what's happening there. So, uh, Himachal Pradesh is a very interesting place. Let's just first of all understand something about, you know, how people are and then that would really put a lot of other things in perspective. So, when you compare three Himalayan states, Kashmir, Uttarakhand and Himachal Pradesh, I'm going to say uh, the most advanced state and the most advanced people are living in Himachal Pradesh. When you just compare it, I mean, amongst these three states, not rest of the India. And why that is? Well, that's because of the exposure that they're getting. They have so much tourism going in there. You have these, you know, Israeli people who would almost never go out of Himachal Pradesh. I don't even understand, you know, how they can be there for indefinite periods anyways. And you have Europeans, you have Americans, and you have, you know, all these other countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you know, people travel over there. And what happens is that over time, you know, people get more and more exposure. It's almost like those people are traveling to those countries because the experiences are so frequent, right? So they have been acquainted with the information that is just not available, you know, to other places of traditional, you know, cannabis. And these people know that there are varieties that exist, you know, uh, which flower faster and can grow, you know, bigger buds. And, you know, there are very very potent as well you know which would ultimately you know get you more money if you were to make hash from them so <clears throat> there are people who understand but where those people are, are they, they are in manali they're around manali in old manali especially there's a place called washisht <clears throat> that's like famous for that and then you have nagar there's a place called nagar that is uh, that is also around uh, like old manali so these uh, these places are like really famous and you go there and you know you could just look at the plant and smell it and you know this is this is not a plant you know that's been grown here or has been you know domesticated 
uh, from the wild populations you just understand that you know this is some uh, this is an effect of uh, you know genetic infection rather so yeah there are places uh, but luckily places like kashmir and uttarakhand have you know stayed uh, safe from uh, things like that because you know first nobody goes there really and you know even if they do i mean you don't get just enough tourism from other countries that you would eventually start to have people who can bring seeds over there plus you know we've been going around those places and you know we've never really seen anything any sign even remotely close to of uh, something that would suggest that you know there's been an activity like that yeah of course and i guess the follow on question i have is that do you think that people trading these modern seeds to land race regions could ultimately lead to the extinction of those regional cultivars? Yeah, it, this is, I mean, this is pretty much how it's going to go down and it's inevitable in a way. And no, no matter how much we, uh, you know, dislike it or say, yeah, you know, we're going to be warriors and we're going to stop this, you know, we're all human beings and, you know, uh, and we're not even like a government funded program or something right so we understand that eventually when a lot of people you know would become aware that you know there is a global community and you know the interaction would have begin to happen in a way like it happened in the IT sector you know which is just absolutely you know maddening then you're going to have tons of people you know uh, selling seeds to india and it only is a matter of time that someone goes out to all of these places and you know start uh, growing these plants and start infecting everything and changing them eventually but that's what uh, you know really our existence is all about and you know as much as i don't like it i mean I, i'm not going to say that it will not happen because that's just not practical yeah there are going to be some places which will be saved places like lolab valley in kashmir or uh, because you you just you just can't go there and i mean like it, it's hard i mean and the only very few people who can go there i mean you know we we know who those people are so for the longest time i think they will be able to save their uh, you know natural varieties but uh, places like malana and places like you know even urgam valley in uttarakhand you know where tourism is more those places would be the first one to fall prey to things like this because uh, they're easy to access and you know the villagers are very friendly and well i mean that's all you need and you know they have an inclination towards making more money from this plant so i just don't see why they would not want to have those varieties when they would understand that clearly we can you know make more money off this and just make the whole situation better for us harvest early i mean you, you cannot deny the fact you know that there are certain advantages inherent advantages which are attached with these you know hybrid varieties but uh you just have to move to a different plane to look at it from a different angle and understand that it's not all about that but for the villagers who are making money off it to them it's all about that and as soon as they realize that they can do something better then they would they would do it yeah okay and i guess my final question on this topic is how do you feel about the fact that greenhouse seeds for example has never reproduced and sold to the public these lines as far as we can tell it's just sitting in their seed bank mm, well again i i don't really think about those things and I, i don't really seem to have an opinion or a, a you know available emotion for that that i can you know readily express right now but 
Um, what I think about that is, I don't know, there could be reasons because they did take Milana line and, you know, they made certain uh, certain varieties with it. But at the same time, you're right, they never re- uh, released those things in pure form. So uh, then you have to understand, I mean, you have to begin to think at least that these people, uh, I mean, someone who does not want to include everyone into the club basically, you know, uh, is not for the people, right? He's... Is those people are just trying to do something which is very specifically beneficial to them, but at the same time, make it appear as though you know uh, other people are part of it. So I mean, it's 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 pretty clever, but at the same time, you know, it's a business, and you know, uh, it's not a surprise. I mean, you know, human beings have done you know so many things. I mean, this just does not even you know, uh, this just doesn't stand in a way that it would surprise anyone that. Uh, you know, that has happened that they've never released any of the pure lines. But, well, that's changing because we here and, you know, other people are here. Uh, so many other people from India right now who are actually on Instagram and they're actually, you know, uh, you know, interacting with these other folks and getting these seats out as we speak. There are folks from India I know and these are all decent collectors, okay? They're good, they're good guys. They're trying to do good things as much as they can. And they have partnered with, you know, certain folks in America and, you know, they're going around doing these partnerships and, you know, preserving the pl- uh, pure variety and then making some hybrids with it and, you know, rolling it out to public, you know, collect the funds and then, you know, distribute it amongst the grower and, you know, the collector and the other people, the farmers who are involved. So I'm, I'm just saying, seeing these so many, you know, multitudes and uh, of facets, you know, in which people are discovering, you know, how the preservation of the land race and the heirlooms uh, could uh, could become more prevalent and could become a thing actually that you know if you if you are a person of cannabis and you don't grow a land race and heirloom variety if you haven't preserved one then it should be like you know shame on you something like that you know that you uh, seem to say that you know you spiritual you do derive a spiritual uh, pleasure from this plant Right, but at the same time, you haven't done anything to preserve the source from where you derive that pleasure. So, once people have that kind of understanding, once we understand on the spiritual level why the history matters, why we cannot ignore these people who who have done all the work for thousands of years, who have gone out in the wild, recognized the plant, brought them back, domesticated them, and got them to a point where they started to look like the cannabis plant that we, you know, uh, look at. And then some people from Europe or America, you know, they went out and they grabbed those varieties and, you know, made hybrids within a matter of few decades. I mean, that was only possible because before that, those varieties were, you know, domesticated for thousands of years. Let me just say this very bluntly. I mean, if those people had to go out to places where and, you know, get the varieties which are absolutely wild, you know, they grow like just really weed. You understand why it's called weed. And if you had to work with them, a lot of people would still be inbreeding them and getting them to a point, uh, you know, where they uh, where they have some sort of consistency, some 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 sort of homogeneity in terms of their traits that they like, and that's really when you know. Uh, so it would have taken a lot of time, and we wouldn't be nowhere near where we are. And a big part of that is to understand that you know the domestication part, the foundation work, was done by the people you know, who are these indigenous communities in Himalayas, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, you know, Africa, in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and like 
I don't want to just like list all of these, but you know all of these places. So we have to recognize them in an organic way. This is not a, a political way of seeing it that, uh, hey, you know, these guys deserve it. No, it's not like that. I mean, if you're going to say that, you know, that I get a spiritual experience from cannabis, then well, let me ask you something. You know, what is the essence of spirituality? I mean, it lies in the deeper uh, subjective understanding, you know, of our own self, of our uh, things that are around us that m makes us happy. And this is one of the things that I can think of that makes me happy. And, you know, it has a deep impact on me for that reason. So how can you like completely or truly, I mean, uh, reconcile that spiritual experience without actually knowing or understanding or even appreciating the, uh, I mean, the, the magnitude of work which indigenous communities have put in these thousands of years before we came into the picture. So once those things become, you know, uh, common knowledge and we know all of that history, the cultures, that's when we can truly say that we are able to now have a complete spiritual experience from this plant. Just, that's what I feel. Yeah, no, a really powerful sentiment. I dig it, I dig it. So, if we just jump back in the story, I just wanted to quickly ask another question about the Milana fields you went to. Were they making charis or hash from those plants? And if so, what was it like? Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so they, they, they don't actually like stand in the fields and rub them. What they usually do is uh, either they send the women of the house or like somebody would go out, venture into the fields with like a makeshift basket which is attached to a rope and you could wear it like a bag, right? So they would, uh, you know, cut a bunch of plants and they would just bring them to a designated place of rubbing. So uh, let me just tell you some a little, a little about, you know, the rubbing here so that, you know, you know, it becomes a bit more understandable. So one is Malana village and most of the rubbing does not actually happen over there. Most of the hash is not actually made in the Malana village because their fields are around the village, which are these different valleys, Waichin Valley, Wailing, and Magic Valley, and a few others. What these people do is that these people have makeshift houses in each of these valleys where their fields are. So they're not traveling back and forth every day to their house during the harvest season because the harvest window is small at the same time, police is cracking down on them and they have to make sure that they go get through their, uh, you know, uh, whatever they've grown, their produce very quickly. So the best way to do it is during the Octobers, they would move with the entire family to these places like uh, white, let's just say, in Wailing Valley, right? And now from that point onwards, every day is simply dedicated from morning till they go to the sleep, rubbing hash, producing hash. It's just a relentless process. They're speaking to you. I mean, you could be there smoking or eating food or looking around and you would just see these people are going about it as if like we go about breathing uh, around that point in time. So it, it it gets normalized pretty soon once, you know, you get you, you grow, grow accustomed to it because you see so much of it. I mean, as soon as you get in there, if you go there, around, you know, the season when, uh, you know, plants are flowering, that is around October. Of course, October and November as well. But November, um, you don't see much of rubbing, but October is everywhere. I mean, you just get near Milana and, you know, the air has this freaking smell of cannabis, you know. It, it, it drives you crazy and it tells you, you know, where to go. You can just leave the smell. 
Oh, wow. That sounds lovely. I think I actually saw on one of your Instagram posts that you were saying a lot of the kind of hash and charis and whatnot that comes out of that region is kind of like a 50-50 of THC to CBD. And I thought that's that's really surprising. Do you like what do you think of that? What do you make? How do you think that really happened? Because I don't think many people would have predicted that. Yeah, first of all, I'm gonna uh, tell you like why I think that is the case and like how I got to that conclusion. So um, there was somebody in Europe uh, who imported by you know however he managed it to import some hash which was from Milana. Okay. And that was tested and it came out to be like 50% THC and almost like nearly 50% CBD. Now you have to understand that if hash is coming from Milana, it's not coming from one plant. What you have there is you have a small chunk taken out of a huge chunk that was made from so many different plants. I mean, if you were to do like a random sample, uh, like you would do in an experiment, that's exactly how it would be done. You would just go about without discriminating amongst the plants. You just say the first 50 plants that I encounter, you know, I'm going to rub them and whatever the hash tells me is, is going to be the story, is going to be the phytochemical story of this population, right? So when that happened, what we saw was you see, you actually see a higher amount of CBD, by the way, but it's still, I mean, almost equal. It's like 60, 40 kind of thing. And then there was another incident. So this was one incident. The second isolated incident was I, I gave some seeds to uh, one of the guys who, who grew it. And he grew actually a few of them, not just one or two. And this guy did something really interesting. He did not seed them and, you know, he uh, trimmed them and cured the buds. And he smoked everything separately and he had marked the plants. And then he came back to me and he he said he said it look it's weird but uh, here's the deal some of the plants uh, you know have a great high and then these and some plants have mild high and there are some plants which have no high at all no effects and they're like this uh, they have all the trichomes they have all the beautiful smells just like the other plant but they just don't have any effects to them at all. And that gets you thinking that what is happening there. So basically what you're seeing is you're seeing resin on the plant. So there has to be some something, some cannabinoid in it. So if it's not THC, then what is it? I mean, the only more abundant cannabinoid that, you know, uh, actually is present in the environment is CBD. And I had already known from that test that came from Europe for that hash that was imported from India that a major part of the the uh, you know the chemical composition is CBD. So if you just put these observation together and you know uh, think in a you know if in a reductive manner, then you ultimately get to a conclusion that look, there seem to be this uh, distribution of population among in a way that uh, there are plants which are purely uh, you know making CBD. And with that said, they have certain amounts of THC. I'm not trying to say that just zero uh, THC. There is some THC with predominantly CBD. And then you have plants which have a very uh, uh, nice balanced CBD and THC content, which is close to 50-50 or, you know, just various combinations. And then you have plants which are dominantly producing THC and they're, uh, you know, they, they produce very little CBD. So what you see in uh, nature is, uh, I mean, Milana, that you seem to have these three varieties and they're intermixed, they're getting cross-pollinated. So 
uh, the, the the population or the dominance of the population, you know, it, it works out in a random fashion. So what you see is the the dominant gene, uh, I'm sorry, the chemotype is the one that produces CBD and THC. And uh, I actually fell back to one of the studies that happened in 2003, I think it was from America. Somebody did an experiment. He took a drug variety and he took a non-drug variety, which is a hemp. He crossed them. And what he saw in F1 was, uh, you know, uh, from the uh, heterogeneous population, uh, he saw that most of the plants uh, carried a co-dominant expression, which was THC and CBD. And about like 25% of the plants, close to 25% of the plants were CBD and close to 25% were THC. So it was almost like a one ratio, two ratio, one in F1. And, and that tells you something that if these populations are led to mix and intermingle, then which chemotype would eventually be more dominant and which would be a little more recessive in nature. And that's exactly, uh, you know, what we're seeing in Milana when we isolate these plants and, you know, grow them separately and, you know, uh, uh, take out the resin separately and sample them. Because that is just not a thing that's going to happen in Milana. I mean, you can't get people to just rub one single plant and, you know, give you the hash and then rub a different plant. Although we are going to try to uh, make that happen uh, this year. We're hoping. We're hoping that we're gonna make this, uh, you know, happen. Uh, but it's gonna be difficult because it's hard to find, you know, plants big enough that you could just rub and make a tangible amount of uh, resin to sample for five to six people. So we'll we'll see if we can work it uh, that ways, and if we if I can get some of the samples out for testing as well, and I can have. Uh, and I can have the testing done from one single source to really get a comprehensive report, uh, which can be, you know, taken a little more seriously. Yeah, that's a cool little goal for this next coming year. I guess the question that comes to mind for me is, why do you think we see this strong occurrence of CBD in this type of hash compared to, say, Afghani hash, where we just see it's primarily THC? I, I think that uh, the answer lies in the way uh, human beings have, uh, you know, interacted with the cannabis plant. <clears throat> a big part of that is the way they have been domesticated. So if we just rewind a little bit and let's just start from a time when human beings are not really uh, aware that, you know, cannabis is something that they need uh, as a plant. It has so many, you know, beneficial properties and such a wonderful thing to be around. I'm sorry, just give me one moment. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So once uh, that happens, once a community, let's say, let's take an example of Hindu Kush. Let's a community in Hindu Kush realizes that, hey, this is a great plant. This is growing uh, around us and, you know, it has certain properties and it's really cool. So what they do is they take that plant and they bring it to their surroundings where they grow other useful plants like tomatoes or, you know, coriander or anything else that they grow over there. And they would start cultivating it uh, along with it. So eventually what's going to happen is uh, some physiological changes uh, would be observed over time because of, you know, the new, the frequency of the nutrient, uh, uh, you know, increasing and, you know, the plant would eventually accommodate to those changes and become vigorous, right, would increase the surface, leaf, sur surface area of the leaf. Uh, the stem is going to become more rigid instead of the spindly, spindly one. And it would, of course, produce more because of all those changes uh, present in the plant eventually. So 
the domestication that happened in Hindu Kush, basically, that happened around the recreation part. Because I don't think in Hindu Kush they were making ropes out of the plants. I don't think they were domesticated those domesticating those plants so they could, you know, take out seeds and make chutney out of that. I, I don't think those things were happening over there. What I really think was happening there was that they had realized that this plant has an amazing capacity to produce, um, you know, substances which are just amazing, like. Ash, you know, it could take you into a different realm altogether. And, you know, for someone who's more religious, he could associate it in a way that, hey, this could be spiritual, you know, and it, it brings me closer to God. So for those reasons, I think uh, most of the domestication that happened in Hindu Kush, that happened around the recreation part. They were more inclined towards, uh, you know, cultivating the plants, which, uh, which had a more significant effect on our cognition rather than uh, selecting plant which looked to be more beneficial or had like a more stem to it or you know uh, larger leaves or whatever but once you come to like you know southeast asia or central asia it's a whole different thing central asia as in the north indian part of central asia it's a whole different thing what's happening there is first of all you look at the plant the plant has a different uh, you know morphological structure uh, how does it differ from the Afghani variety? Well, the way it differs is it's much taller and it's uh, and, it, and flowers for a little longer. But when you look at the leaves, uh, you know, closely at a domesticated variety, let's say from, uh, you know, Malana, what you see is the leaves are not narrow. They are actually pretty broad. They are actually pretty broad leaves. It's just that the plant grows in a way that when you look at the overall plant, you cannot say that it's a broad the variety because it does not have the other characteristics which will correspond to that. So basically, I mean, same thing is happening in Hindu Kush and the same thing is happening in uh, Malana. But what is the difference? Now, the difference is that in Malana or in India or Southeast Asia, people are selecting for various traits and not just for recreation. They're selecting the plants because they want to make ropes out of it. They want to, they're selecting those plants because they want to be able to, you know, use that fiber or those, uh, you know, thick stems or, uh, uh, you know, yeah, thick stems for a shelter or something, right? So those changes ultimately led to the way the those plants are. I mean, they have like a hemp-like a hemp -like structure and Basically, they are not as potent, not nearly as potent as any of the Afghani varieties. And I think the biggest difference uh, that, I mean, the, the, the difference between, uh, you know, having a variety which is very potent and not very potent is the way they were domesticated by human beings and what they domesticated them for. I mean, that's what the embodiment of the plants show with, of course, a lot of feature has to do a lot with the environment as well, but I think we'll get to that later. But just for the domestication part and from the part that you said, uh, why a certain variety seemed to have, you know, uh, a much more intense effect than the other one, then I think that really is the answer. The answer lies in the way they have been domesticated from the earliest time and the people and the communities which have engaged with those plants. Yeah, what a fantastic answer. So. It makes me think then, do you think that maybe this selection for a bit more of those hemp traits, like what we mentioned in the South, Southeast Asian region, do you think that how they did select for those other traits such as the fibrous characteristics and whatnot 
added to why these plants are perceived as having a more uplifting high? Or do you think the uplifting versus sedating component was almost independent of that type of selection? Um, I, I think they have not really selected for the effects very specifically. Uh, I mean, that could be something which is just innate to the plant, that a certain type of plant, uh, I think it could have something to do with the environment because what you usually see, and I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that, you know, the narrow leaf uh, varieties would always have or necessarily have an uplifting high in a Afghani variety or a short, you know, short flowering variety would always have sedating effects. I, I, I think it uh, it's not that black and white, first of all. But yeah, even to a large part, if you feel, I mean, uh, that is the case, which we see to a large extent it is, then I think that is, uh, that's a byproduct of uh, more like the environment that they grow in, I think. And, and I don't really understand, I'm not trying to say that I do understand that, uh, but I would I would lean more towards the environmental you know factors which may have contributing in the uh, you know in, in the way the uh, the plant makes you feel and I'll give you a one example I mean that might make you understand that why I'm leaning towards more environmental factors and that is the quality of the resin so when you go to a, a when you go to a region you know that's that has a very dry climate and the rain is very scarce. It's it's very arid and cold. What you see is the trichomes have a very dry texture on the outside. I mean, they they're not very sticky. I mean, you really have to you know, uh, uh, I mean, uh, what you you really have to touch them to break them apart. You know, I mean, they, they, you can't just touch them and expect that you know, uh, like a jelly like like a saliva like you know, thing would happen as you you know touch the resin because it's just not sticky. But on the other hand, when you go to places which are like uh, which have a subtropical or a tropical environment where rain is prevalent and it's really wet during the flowering, what do you see? What you see is that the resin has a very um, gluey, sticky texture, and you know it makes perfect sense, you know, because uh, in in a situation where it's constantly raining while your plant is in flowering, what you would want is your plant to have a very sticky kind of resin so that the water does not hold on in between them and it just, you know, slides right through uh, the buds because that is really going to help you mitigate those um, environmental risks. I mean, apart from that, there are certain, you know, innate qualities in plants which make them, uh, of course, resistant to things like mold and mildew and all these factors. But uh, the apparent physical traits uh, some of the apparent physical traits are also there, which you can see as the adaptations in the plants because of the environment they grow in. And now we're talking about the texture of the resin. I mean, we're talking about the thing that actually induces the, uh, you know, the psychological changes when you smoke it. So if the texture of that thing is dictated pretty much by the environment they grow in, then it's only reasonable to believe that you could take it a step further and, you know, it, it probably transcends into you know the effects as well and but again i'm not going to say that that's the case or i understand that but that's what i feel about it no that makes a lot of sense and it perfectly segues into my next question which is that we often hear this idea expressed about let's just say you're in some region and you smoke some of the herb and it's it's brilliant and you're able to get some of the seeds people would often say that if you take that back to where you come from, let's assume you're from a different country, you go back to where you're from, 
if you grow it out, say, indoors or just under some quite controlled conditions, it's just not going to be the same, you know, because it was all about the terroir and the environment. Do you think that's the case? Like, if I get some really nice bud from India, am I never going to be able to reproduce it, even with the seeds in Australia, for example? I think uh, what's contributing to that sort of uh, thinking is a few different factors. And I'm just going to like lay it out here. Um, I think the first and the foremost thing is that we have to understand if you're in a place like India where it grows naturally, let's let's take an example. Uh, let's take the example of Milana because it's a known place, right? So if you're in a place and you find a plant, oh, this is a great plant. You know, I would love to grow this plant when I go back home to US or Australia, wherever. And you take out seeds, but you don't know which males went on to, you know, pollinate that plant. Well, apart from that, what you're looking at is not a true breeding variety. They're not true breeding in nature. So that means they are not homozygous for all the traits you're seeing in them. And that's one of the reasons why you see so much variability in the field. I mean, when you look at 100 plants and like there are like 35 different kinds in 100 plants, then you understand when I mean, there's a lot of variability in terms of genotype, right? So it becomes really hard to find that plant. That's one of the things because it's, it's not being, you know, bred by someone. It's not being narrowed down or bottlenecked. They just emerge as like one-off plant that you may encounter and may like. Now, the second thing is uh, the question that you asked that, is it all about the terroir? Is it going to be the same? Well, of course, terroir plays a pivotal role in the way your plant is going to look. For example, if your grow room is too hot, I mean, you know your plant is going to look like shit pretty much right and if you have a uh, if you have a colder environment in your room which is around 22 24 to 20 degrees celsius then you you know your plant's going to pretty much have a very good time even if there are some other deficits the plant would still do much better so we understand that even in real time i mean you know the the plant reacts to the environment it's in and it's try to mitigate those things by you know expressing itself in a way that it could just get through this somehow and produce flowers and make seeds because at the end we have to understand the plant is not working for us okay the plant is working for itself it wants to make seeds it wants to reproduce and that's it so now it's up to us uh, you know that we have to save it from the male and you know uh, uh, you know make it sensimilia or like whatever we want to do but again we have to understand that the environment while it's having an impact on the plant it's not so deep that it would change the characteristic in a way that you'll not be able to recognize it and i'm going to give you an example for that let's just say that you went to kerala and you collected some seeds now we all understand these are equatorial varieties and you know they flower for a very long time around 16 to 18 or even 20 weeks sometimes just rare but they do anyways so you bring that back and you 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 grow inside your house so what you may see is that you might just see that you have slightly broader leaves because your indoor grow room or your outside condition may be a little colder, you know. So you might see that, but you're not going to see that a Kerala plant is going to finish in eight weeks. That is not going to happen. I mean, a change of that magnitude would never happen. That is one thing. And then the other thing is that are you able to find the very specific bud or the flower or the flavor that you're looking at? Now, in time, in terms of flavor, you can get lucky because flavors, uh, even in, you know, uh, uh, even in the population, which have great variability, I mean, you know, the flavor seems to be pretty homogeneous. I don't know for what reason, but it is. So, yeah, you can have. Uh, you know, you can find the flavor within a relatively small population, but if you really want to find the same plant, 
there is no guarantee. And if somebody's like offering you seed by saying that, I mean, well, then you should be very skeptical of that person as well. <laughs> I can definitely agree with that sentiment. So I want to ask a little bit because, I mean, I'm the first one to admit I could probably be a bit more educated about this, but what's your take on classifications? Because I know that you're not particularly into the whole sativa indica thing because, as you said, it's just not so clear-cut. How do you try to classify plants? And as a little follow-up, how would you describe most Indian varieties? I've heard that they're more kind of uplifting. How would you describe them? Okay. Yeah, so uh, I mean, before I really get down to the classification part, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm going to speak briefly about, you know, what exactly is the problem with the current nomenclature that, you know, we seem to use. So the Indiga Sativa thing, I mean, uh, I, I now I'm hearing a lot of people, you know, they, they're, uh, they're trying to say that, hey, you know, this Indiga Sativa thing doesn't seem to work. I mean, the distinction is not, you know, great enough. And then there are a lot of plants in between. So you don't really know what to call them. So people are you know, the more they get exposed to different varieties, more they would understand that how these, uh, you know, labels are just not going to be enough to encapsulate the whole idea of this plant. Now, where it particularly fails is, I think, in the settings that where people have not been who are using these words. So let's just say somebody in, I'm just giving an example, right? So let's just say, for example, in someone in America says today, uh, says one day, I'm going to call all the cannabis plants with narrow leaf uh, sativa and everything that grows with broad leaf and stays short, you know, subsequently, I'm going to call it uh, indica. And he's like, okay, that's perfect because that's all I see. I see narrow leaf plants and I see broad leaf plants. But that's really his world. I mean, I mean, it's not other people's really fault that you have never gone out of your house or you've never gone out of your country, right? And you've never seen that, you know, there, there's more exists in the world. So from that person's perspective, it's perfectly okay. And, you know, the system seemed to work okay up to a point where other people start to come in and, you know, they start sending in all these varieties. And what you see is uh, you see narrow leaf plant that finish faster, like, you know, what you would expect from an indica. And then you have, you know, broad leaf, really broad leaf plant that would go on to flower like 13 to 14 weeks. And that's when you begin to uh, think that, hey, is it, really, I mean, uh, is it really sufficient, the sativa indica label, to, you know, capture the whole idea? And clearly the answer is no, it's it's not, I mean, at the, lead, at the best it creates confusion and nothing else. Now, another problem with <clears throat> that kind of uh, labeling is that when you go to, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of Kashmir, if you go to Pulwama, so what you're going to see is there are farm population which are being farmed by the farmers, uh, right, domesticated ones, and just on the vicinity, what you're going to see is there are a lot of wild population, untamed population, which is just growing like wheat. And nobody is stopping those two varieties from interacting with, with each other. And then you see a third variety is stemming from that interaction. That is an intermediate variety between those two. So how do you account for that? I mean, it, it's hard. It, it's hard to account for it. So that label sort of like fails us in like so many ways, you know, that I just don't feel comfortable using it because I often get to points where I, I just feel that this is not enough. So what I did as a solution, because you just can't complain about it, right? You have to do something about it if you don't like it. So what I did was I, I, I thought, you know, this, uh, I, I think uh, 
I may be wrong, but I think Robert Clark was the person who proposed that, you know, these should be labeled as broad leaf and short leaf plants. Uh, I'm sorry, narrow leaf plants, which is good. I find I find that, uh, you know, much better because first of all, those words are self-explanatory. You don't need to tell someone what a narrow leaf drug variety is. It just explains itself in itself. And that's amazing. You want it to be simple. Now, the second thing that it does is that, you know, it effectively classifies those two plants that we're uh, referring to a narrow leaf drug producing variety. And then you could have varieties which are narrow leaf and non-drug producing. So it also accounts for those varieties, so, which is great. But then again, you run into a small problem. And that small problem is when you encounter varieties like, let's say, from northern Kashmir, which are narrow leaf, but they flower very fast. They, in fact, flower within 55 to 66 days. Then it seem to uh, then it uh, then it seems like that there has to be a little more to that broad leaf narrow leaf section if you could. Well, there is a, a very good answer to that. So what I thought was, you could basically look at these plants, and I'm not I'm I'm not talking about hybrids here, okay? Because those are like man-made. Uh, you know, uh, combinations. So we're just talking about the naturally occurring varieties and the varieties which were derived later and domesticated in those regions and elsewhere. Okay, so what we can do is we can distribute the world in basically four to five different zones. So initially I, I did four zones and what I did was I thought, okay, so I'm going to start from the equator. So what do I have is the thinnest leaves like needle-like leaves uh, in the plants which are growing near the equator, but they're also not at high altitudes. I mean, you can be like, you know, Colum uh, uh, like Colombia, you know, where you, you have highlands, even though it's pretty close to the equator, not that close. It's, I think it's around 26 degrees north, but still. So, but there are highlands, so it's going to affect the plant in a different way. So I thought, okay, pure first category is going to be the f uh, purely um, narrow leaf plants which grow in the equator, and I call them equatorial long flowering varieties. Now, what this does is, first of all, it tells you about where that variety is coming from, equatorial. You immediately know this is an equatorial variety, comes from equator. The second thing you immediately understand, it's a long flowering variety, okay? So an equatorial long flowering variety. Now, this is where I say that you go around the equator anywhere in the world, and if you find a plant that is naturally growing or being domesticated around uh, the equator, it's going to have a very long pe flowering period around like 14 to 16 weeks, which is quintessential to the cannabis varieties which have adapted around those regions. And it's going to have narrow leaves because it's going to be hot and the plant would, you know, uh, the, the way uh, plant tend to mitigate that is by, you know, reducing the surface area of the leaf. Then we move on to the second uh, section. The, so the second classification was um, highland long flowering zones. So now if you come to places like Colombia, like I spoke about Colombia, or uh, I would actually like to talk about uh, Himachal Pradesh or Malana, in, uh, because it's around the same uh, latitude, it's around like 29, 30 uh, degrees north, right? So again, these pl places are not very close to the equator, but they're not very far away from the equator either. But at the same time, there is a very uh, interesting characteristic attached to this second ca uh, second category. That is that these are highlands. These are the places which have altitude over 1,500 meters. So anything 
at any region that is below 33 degrees north, and I will come back to it, why 33 degrees north, I'll come back to it later. Any place that is 33 degrees, uh, which is below 33 degrees north or south of the equator, and it has an altitude of 1500 meters or above, that would be classified as a highland long flowering variety. Because when you go to these places, what you see is you see a medium long flowering varieties that it that flowers just a tad bit earlier than you know the equatorial ones so your kerala finishes around 16 and your malana is going to be done around like 12 13 so there'll be about a month's difference okay then we move on to the third category and this is where uh, you know things will get really interesting and the third category is the areas which are high latitude short flowering zones now the word tells you that these all areas are situated in high latitudes and the plants that grow there are short flowering in nature. So we're talking about places which are 33 degrees north or above them. They seem to have a characteristic that those varieties will finish faster and they always tend to have bigger resin glands and like more copious coverage of resin, which again makes you believe, uh, makes you, uh, you know, think or believe that the colder environment has a direct relationship with you know uh, the uh, the resin coverage or the pr production of resin because when you go to the places near equator where it's hot uh, the resin is not never co in copious amount and trichomes are really uh, small which is exactly the opposite as you move to the high latitude regions where it's always really cold because you're in the higher latitudes so the varieties tend to have these characteristics and the last one is high latitude highlands. So there are some highlands within the high latitude because the third category that we spoke about, high latitude short flowering zone, that was for all the places which are below 1500 meters in altitude, but above 33 degrees north. So they still have a significant short season and the varieties tend to finish around like eight to nine weeks, but, uh, or around like 10 weeks, sorry. And then you go to a different region, you know, which is highland, but it's again situated above 33 degrees north. Now things really get interesting here because not only those places are going to be cold, you know that those places are going to get the snowfall right around the end of November, uh, around the end of October or the beginning of November. Because one, they are so higher up in latitude. I mean, they're above 33 degrees of north. Secondly, there is 1,500 meters of altitude or more involved. So places like Hindu Kush, you know, uh, Hindu Kush mountains or uh, certain places in Pakistan like Chitral or Abbottabad, all these places are like above 33 degrees. And, uh, you know, they also have an altitude of, of 1,500 meters and more. And they seem to have completely different characteristics. These are the plants, uh, you know, which have an insane amount of resin. I mean, some of the plants have so much resin coverage on them that, you know, it could really, uh, you know, rival any of the hybrid varieties. And we understand that all of these places, uh, you know, the, uh, where, where high latitude, highland, uh, you know, regions are of natural cannabis varieties or for domesticated cannabis varieties. All these places are luckily, you know, situated in dangerous areas where, you know, your uh, greenhouse or yellow house seed company could not have gone, you know, with their seeds or whatnot. So we understand, you know, whatever we're seeing there is a, is a byproduct of the environment. So that's how you can basically classify four uh, categories. And you can go on my website, that is www.indianlandrisexchange.com. 
I have written an article that was written, I think about year, year and a half ago about this. And I, I need to amend a few things to it because I'm always learning and trying to put together, you know, more information in a more coherent manner. So you guys can go and actually read that uh, article, you know, if I may not be explaining it very well here. So, but, but that's one of the classifications which I feel is really complete and it kind of encapsulates everything, uh, you know, that is present in, uh, in the cannabis hotspots where cannabis been growing either traditionally for a very long time or has been growing naturally or has been domesticated. The only uh, issue that I had later on was with one of the regions that became apparent to me, and that was um, the cold desert regions like Niti Valley in uh, Uttarakhand. This is close to Indo-Tibetan border, and it's only at 31 degrees north, so this place is not above 33 degrees. However, the uh, the conditions, the environmental conditions at Niti Valley are exactly the same as they are in Hindu Kush mountaintop. These are, uh, first of all, let me just explain to you, uh, explain it to you why it's that. Because uh, Niti Valley is a, is a cold desert because it lies in the rain shadow of the Himalayas. So Himalayas has a rain shadow and anything that lies under it will never get the monsoon. Okay, and it's going to be absolutely dry. So that's one of the re reasons it's absolutely dry and, you know, arid. And the plants that grow there, they kind of grow in exactly the similar conditions uh, than uh, compared to the plant which are growing at high altitude and high latitude like in the Kush. So they seem to acquire exactly the same features as plants from Hindu Kush or plants from Chitral and uh, these places, except for when you go to Niti Valley, there is no domestication that has happened. But you can apparently see a short statured plant, you know, in the absence of moisture, it grows really tucked to the ground to keep all the moisture intact. And, you know, flowers are dense, the resin is really dry, leaves are deeply serrated, which is very characteristic of plants which come from, you know, high latitude and high altitudes. So you see all those features and, uh, you know, we have, and that really solidifies our understanding that yes, indeed, environment is that one scale that you know we can map everything against, and you know it will be uh, really helpful in understanding and in classifying these varieties. But again, this does not really encapsulate any of the hybrid varieties. So then, if you want to have a different system for for referring to hybrids, I, I think then somebody would have to. Uh, you know, come up with a way to do that. There was another classification which was done after that because environment is not the only factor, even if it is the biggest factor in shaping the way plants are. The second biggest factor is the human beings. Now, so we did a little, uh, we made like three different types on based on how human beings interact with the plants. And the first plants are, which are completely wild primordial. They have no contact with human beings. Human beings have never domesticated them. They have never fed them. And that's one. And then the second category we made is of the directly affected wild plants. Directly affected wild plants are something you find in the cities. These are primordial varieties, naturally occurring varieties, never been domesticated, but they're getting affected by human presence. They're getting affected by the artificial lightning, by all the pollution that we're creating and all the other situations, you know, our cattle's graze on them and stuff like that. So those have, uh, you know, driven some changes. And uh, once again, I wrote an article on that that uh, is also uh, present on my website. So if you guys want to get a little more insight into that, I would, uh, you know, uh, I would say that you should read that. But 
coming back to the point, so uh, th that's the second variety which we classified in terms of human interaction, that varieties which are also wild, but they are affected by human beings, not domesticated by them, affected by them because of our activities, because of what happened after industrialization, industrial revolution, you know, lights became widespread and you know, things had to change. And if you go look populations at, you know, Punjab, what you see is that a lot of plants now auto flower because, you know, they are constantly growing under different light patterns from artificial street lights. They have figured out a way to, you know, induce flowering without uh, the light hours because that's a much better way to reproduce in a situation where, you know, light uh, is not natural. And then you see some of the plants, you know, they they have intersex tendencies and the auto flowering tendency, you know. So a, 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 lot, a lot of different things which are, and these changes are, uh, you know, more or less driven by our activities, our, uh, you know, involvement consciously and consciously with those plants. And then uh, we selected third, right? Uh, I'm sorry, we made the third category in terms of human interaction, that was the domesticated varieties, the traditional varieties like in Malana, in Uttarakhand, in Balochistan, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, you know, uh, which are actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, affected by human beings, but are actually domesticated, not uh, affected in an adverse manner, but are like cared for and, you know, made into something which is more meaningful. Wow, what a really comprehensive rundown. That was awesome. I appreciate that. I guess my next question is quite broad, so I understand if you find it a bit hard to give specific answers to, but everyone I speak to who's really into land races has this same sentiment where they say, I've never really tried an Indian land race. You know, it's one of those ones which just doesn't get as much attention as some of the others. What other land races might you try to compare India to? If you just wanted to try to give someone an idea, if you were like, oh, it's, it's kind of like a tie, but a bit different, like, you know, how would you describe it to someone? Well, that's that's a great question. Thank you very much for I mean framing it in that way. So now it's really easy to you know make comparison and answer that. Now, uh, like you said, I mean Indian varieties. I mean you know they they get like undermined big time. And I'm telling you, you know, even though there is a little bit of work involved there, because again, like I said, and I accept this that you know the domestication, the level of domestication that has happened in India is nowhere uh, you know close to what has happened in places like Afghanistan or Pakistan. I mean. Right. So rightly so, people are people are right in choosing those varieties more often over the Indians or even some of the Southeast Asians uh, for that reason. But I think another reason that's there is uh, really the cultural reason. And, and I'm going to I'm going to uh, try to, you know, I'm going to actually try to, first of all, answer the other question that. I would say uh, if, if you go to Kashmir, if you go to Southern Kashmir or Pulwama or Srinagar, how I see those plants look very similar to uh, your Ethiopian plants, you know, the Ethio the plant that come from Ethiopian highlands and they're very, you know, spindly and they look absolutely the same to the Kashmiri varieties, at least to me. And, you know, that's one of the uh, very sought after varieties. So, I mean, yeah. And the South Indians like Kerala and Shilavati, they're like pretty synonymous to your average, you know, Southeast Asian varieties that comes from Thailand and other places like Vietnam. But now coming back to the cultural reason that I was going to touch upon, actually, that is, I think, I mean, try to think about this. All the varieties which are really famous in America or in the larger world are the ones where America had like had a war. So they had a Vietnam war and like Vietnamese seems to be very famous and, you know, 
they constantly have you know something going in Afghanistan for so long so Afghanistan seems to be you know of uh, you know uh, seems to be very famous so th- th- there are a few things we have to understand and the first is the the psych uh, the psycholinguistic aspect of it that if you're gonna hear about something for so long or it has you have certain memories attached to it right so you're naturally going to incline more towards those things even though you don't understand i mean there are a lot of people who have never actually had a pure vietnamese and they're going to tell you that is the best sweet in the world and that tells you something about you know how people are getting to these conclusion i mean i'm sure there are some killer varieties coming from vietnam vietnam right and some people have had them and some people truly uh, know that you know the, the these are just mind-boggling stuff if you run into one of those psychedelic you know uh, plants that induce the psychedelic effects it's really uncanny to feel that way on cannabis but do we really feel that everybody has gone through that kind of experience i don't think so i think uh, a lot of the uh, you know opinion that people have about these different varieties is just shaped by because of the culture the way cultures have been and way our emotions are attached to s- certain places and also because you had a war in like vietnam or let's say somebody had a war in like afghanistan then there is a bigger there's a uh, fat probability that that person is going to get some seeds uh, back right and you can only appreciate things that you have so if you only have vietnamese and afghani then of course you're going to appreciate them you can't appreciate something you don't have i mean in a way uh, in a in a subjective way that you've had them right so i think it's only a matter of time as the indian varieties become more available to people that people would understand that however it requires a little bit of work but there are so much uh untapped potential in these lines and you know there is no one way to really work with those varieties i've seen people work with them you know in different ways some people just try to find a very nice plant out of 1000 plants and you know reverse it and just go from there some people like to you know select for traits and you know eventually homogenize them and then you know work them work with those varieties as true breeding varieties and some people just take them and you know hit it with other hybrids and that creates fantastic plants as well requires some sort of you know selection work later on but all good so i i think once these things become more prevalent it it becomes like a norm because i have been you know doing this for about like 5 years now and and i can tell you this that 5 years ago you know when i was on facebook and i initially come here i mean people were not as inclined you know towards collecting and preserving land rights and i'm not trying to say that people weren't doing that you know because it could be viewed as that and it's it's not because there were a lot of people who i consider to be legends you know uh like bodies there and then you have snow high and you know i i want to name a lot of other people but you know i couldn't but all these people are there they have done all that work you know so nobody's saying that you know it wasn't done but it was not widespread and i don't think that you know people were um how should i say this people readily wanted to to you know get these varieties and grow them because the culture was just not uh you know uh, the cultural the, the the flow of the market as well because you know there is a market which we cannot ignore right so you have to understand the dynamics are such that people are inclined towards varieties you know which will finish faster and you know uh which are being hyped by the media or the social media so a lot of there is a lot of small things you know which have contributed so far uh, you know 
in Indian varieties not really being, you know, one of the uh, one of the ones which are sought after really when you talk about land resources and whole. But I think at the same time, the same technology helped uh, people from India to connect with all across the people on the globe and, you know, really get these seeds out to them. And it's only now that people are beginning to understand that, you know, no cannabis is bad or good cannabis. It's just you have to grow enough of it to find that great one. Yeah, what an awesome sentiment. I mean, just to jump off topic for one second, because you kind of brought it up yourself there. How would you describe the effect that social media, such as Instagram, has had over the cannabis scene and the community within India? Has it changed it fundamentally, in your opinion? Um, yeah, it, it has. It has a lot. And I think Instagram has done uh, possibly a lot more than YouTube, Facebook and all the other you know platforms we know of put together. Because uh, first of all, you know, when Instagram came in, I mean, it gives you a seamless uh, you know, platform to just go ahead and, you know, uh, upload pictures and talk about them. So that's basically like just being in being in that place and listening to that person's story so it's really intuitive first of all so i think that had a very deep impact on the people in india and apart from that um, all the information that is coming from the western world you know because now people in india a significant amount of people in india knows what og is what cookies i mean they don't know about all the you know stories behind them and all the controversies of course because that is something internal to the community but they, they know what cookie, that there is something called cookies and, oh, man, it's the best thing. And in the most basic way, I mean, you know, you, you cannot really blame someone. And I'm not trying to say that cookies is not good. It's really potent. I've smoked it. It's great. Okay. But, I mean, that's how people are getting their information. They're getting it from, I mean, I don't want to say it, but from the lowest common denominator sort of sources, you know, who just brings it down to a point where, you know, more people can understand it opposed to a uh, thing being more factual. I mean, I think because the social media is more inclined towards making it more universal to wider audiences, they seem to you know lose on a lot of content, which could have been you know a lot more meaningful and would have imparted uh, knowledge in a sense that people would then be curious because see, you cannot teach someone in one video or in one audio and one picture, whatever, right? It has to be a relentless process from the person itself of learning. So all you can do is you can incite the curiosity inside that person by telling him the truth, telling him, you know, how things exactly are and how there are some things we don't understand and how there are some things we understand now. And uh, I think unless you're leading these people into a larger pursuit for understanding the plan, then we're just creating a similar society here, you know where uh, people would just fall back to some of the well-known and respected varieties like OG and cookies and, you know, they would breed with them. There are a lot of people who are actually breeding in India. I mean, they're not necessarily in India on uh, Instagram or Facebook for obvious reasons. Uh, but there, there is a lot of work going on and all credits to, you know, social media. It, it has really brought nothing short of a revolution, if I may say so. Wow, what a what a great path for us to go down. I really want to keep going down this road. So, I mean, my first question is, do you see what we would refer to as Cali import within India? Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, more than you would think. So, here's the deal. I mean, first of all, let me go ahead and put things in perspective for you that in India, if you have hybrid wheat, as we call it, okay, 
in India. If you have hybrid wheat, it sells for anything between 800 to 1000 US dollars for every ounce, about 30 grams. Ooh. Okay. Yes, sir. That is that is the least price that you will get it for. And then, you know, there'll be instances you might be spending like $1,500 or $1,200 because it's not available in India. And there is no such quality. I'm sorry. There's no such thing as quality in India. Okay. About when it comes to hybrid. So if you have hybrid, if it looks different enough from the conventional wheat, and you can say it's hybrid and it would sell for seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars, man. Like whatever you feel like scalping off of other people, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they love it. I mean, because the prices they get from, you know, people in US, it's just insane because I know I had some friend, you know, who would send an ounce for like a hundred bucks, like hundred dollars, right? So if imagine if you could just get an ounce for a hundred dollars of US and you could sell it for a thousand dollars. In India, I mean, that's just insane, right? I mean, you'd be, yeah, you'd, you'd be pretty rich, I, I would say. But at the same time, I mean, this is a whole different domain, you know, people who sell weed, I mean. So, but I'm just trying to put things into perspective that that's how people, you know, view weed in India. And that's the prices like, I mean, uh, that, that that's the kind of, you know, price tag that comes with it. So, yeah, a lot of people are uh, smoking it at the same time, but it's not readily available for Indians here. But you, we do see a lot of bags of cookies and runs, you know, making it over. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that you see runs. That's so good. Um, so, you know, I got a kind of like a little triple question here for you. So, the first part is, do many people grow indoors? And are there any kind of strains which are grown locally, which people are well aware of, like, you know, like the Indian blue dream type of thing? Is there anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think most of the people grow indoors because of the obvious reason it's not being legal. And some people are blessed to be in places like one of my friends who's actually one of the guys who breeds along with me. He lives in a place where he can grow it outside and you know because there's nobody around him but most people this is not the case for them i mean you know we have to stick to the indoors now to the more interesting question you asked the local variety so there is one such variety but i cannot vouch whether it's simply being you know uh, bred out of kerala gold or whether it's a combination of kerala gold and a hybrid that was then selected you know which uh, so I don't understand that, but here's the thing. There's a strain called Shilavati, and you can Google it. And I would recommend you Google that. Just write Shilavati in Google. I'll give you the spellings later. And you would see that, you know, there's so much being written about it. And it's grown in South India. And this variety is not confined to one place. It's grown all over South India. And then it makes it over to North India, and everybody knows the name. So this is one weed everybody seemed to know the name of because it would get you higher than any other weed, you know, and it has a dense structure. I mean, the buds, I mean, they're not dense like the, like OG or cookie dense, but, you know, they're relatively dense when you compare it to Kerala or its predecessors like uh, Iduki Gold. But it has a great smell. It has, you know, uh, probably a more intense smell and the high is better. So it, it's it's really taking India by storm. But again, uh, you can't really compare it to, you know, some of the varieties that you guys have been able to breed. I mean, nowhere close to that. But sure, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there slowly, I guess. 
Yeah, well, that's that's still really cool to hear. So, when people are doing their little indoor grows or even outdoors, how do people tend to grow? Do they do it organically in soil? Do they use salts? Like, what's the most common style you see? Um, in India, most people uh, choose to grow organically, and it is not based on how they feel about you know different growing methods. I'll give you an example for in America. What I see, or at least I feel, is that uh, why people choose to grow with salts or no-till or water, whatever, is because of how they feel about, you know, uh, if it's grown organically or if it's grown with salts. But that's not the case in India. In India, I think it's driven by something else. So we don't, uh, at least the younger generation, is not really sensitive about this organic, non-organic thing because uh, we're just in a different sphere here in India. Most of the things come organically to us. And we are more concerned about how can I spend the least amount of money and still pull off a grow? And that inevitably leads you towards organic growing. So that's really what the motivation is behind more people actually uh, doing organic and very few people actually using uh, these nutrients. And I'll tell you which people do use these nutrients. And it's very synonymous to the Western uh, countries, the people who are growing for selling the wheat. Now, there are a lot of people who are pumping units from their houses, okay? They're like growing in the tents and like big rooms. And they feel that, you know, if they can use these uh, nutrients which come from Europe and America, then their weed would look as good as theirs look in picture. But that's, uh, I mean, and you know how that translates in the end, but at least that's how those people feel. And they tend to spend a lot of money. And the other hand, you know, they don't have a concern around money because they're actually getting paid for it. They're not growing it for their consumption. So they have a whole different financial situation going so they can actually think about, you know, using something uh, like, uh, you know, expensive fertilizers which come from countries like America, Europe. So there are different groups, but um, basically that's what the thinking is in India. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, that certainly makes sense. And especially considering most things are organic, you could understand most people would do that. So just to kind of stay on this general topic, what would be your advice to someone if they've just flown into India somewhere? Is there kind of like a general strategy you would advise for them to be able to track down some weed or do they really just need to like ask around? Like what's the way to go about doing that? Well, it, it depends. I mean, where you had it to because I mean, India is such a diverse country when it comes to culture and people and languages and so much more. You know, every 10 kilometers language changes you know, the dresses changes. So does the culture and the way people behave and people feel about uh, certain things, which also involves cannabis. So for example, if you go to Uttarakhand, uh, that is uh, my hometown, and you, you, you see a very relaxed kind of demeanor towards cannabis from other people. I mean, you know, you could literally go to a tea shop and you could, you know, buy a tea and after five minutes, you could ask him, you know, hey, if you could like help me score some. And if he doesn't have some, you know, he will like let you know where you can get some. And, you know, if he doesn't, then you just politely say that I don't know, or he would probably send you to another guy who would be able to help you. Uh, but if you're going to, let's say, South India, then it's not, uh, I wouldn't say, it's not recommended that, you know, you go ask any random person, but you rather try to connect with the youth in South India, because in South India, the younger people are 
uh, a lot more into uh, cannabis than I would say in North India. So there's a very good probability if you're speaking to someone, you know, who's of who's between 18 to 30 years old, that he would know the whereabouts of the wheat. But in North India, yeah, yeah, pretty much you can like speak to the people who are driving, you know, go-kart rickshaws or who are selling, you know, cigarettes. And these are the go-to people. I mean, you know, you, you go, the best place you can go to is go to a guy who is, uh, you know, driving that go-kart rickshaw kind of thing, you know, the three-wheeler. I don't know what you guys call that yeah, over yeah, there. Sure. Yeah, rickshaw, right? So those people are really famous and even so much that, you know, uh, when our parents had to scold us for like, or had to tell us that weed is bad, they would say that, hey, this is the drug of those rickshaw pullers, you know. So you smoke it and you're like, yeah, you're like them. So I mean, I mean, it's so engraved in the culture that it, uh, you know, it becomes something. It becomes something of an expression to scare kids. So you have to. I mean, uh, I mean, we generalize a lot. I mean, it's really bad. But no, no, no. I I totally understand that. So I mean, if we just kind of move on to kind of the physical landscape a little bit more. What's the soil like to growing? Because you mentioned that people tend to grow organically. Is the soil well suited in your opinion? Is it rich in nutrients, fairly depleted? How do people work with it? Okay, now so- soil is a very important aspect for growing plants, as you all know. But I think there is a vast difference between how things are happening in, I'm not going to talk about Europe because I'm not really aware of that. But in terms of America and India, I could draw like this little uh, comparison that in America, I see a lot of people buy soils, and for uh, for someone in India, that is completely insane. I mean, you know, nobody would give money for soil. I mean, it's not in a way insulting other people, but you have to understand from our culture, I mean, we don't pay for soil, like we pay for food. We don't pay for soil ever, okay? It's free. And what another reason behind that is because most of the soil is fertile here, because what is northern India, by the way? Northern India used to be a big floodplain for all these different rivers. I mean, there are only five rivers flowing from Punjab itself that used to at least. And all of the soil that is here is actually your alluvial deposits and, you know, the minerals, uh, you know, which the rivers have, you know, flown down into these plains from, from the mountainous regions. So the soil is really good. It's alluvial soil, mostly like it has a clay loam like texture. You know, at some places it's more yellowish. You go to other places, it's a little bit dark, but soil is really good. And, you know, the, the, the pH is uh, right around like seven, uh, I, I think like seven, around like seven, 7.2. It just hovers around that. So it's perfect for cannabis. I mean, and even, you know, if there are some varieties, you know, which do not thrive in like higher pH, because you're using the natural soil, you have the indigenous microbes. I mean, they're just going to, you know, uh, equalize that effect. I mean, they're going to counteract that effect. But at the same time, you know, we have to be very careful uh, when using, you know, uh, things like mycorrhizae because we're using indigenous soil. So there's already a species of that, you know, which is present. And, you know, sometimes people would buy mycorrhizae from outside of India and then you would have two different species competing and, you know, it could lead to other problems, but yeah, overall we mostly have this, uh, you know, clay loam and alluvial deposits. You know, it's vast deposits of alluvial soil, and you know the cow dung and is just free. You can get it from anywhere. So uh, 
in India, I mean, people really don't have that kind of like soil buying culture or like nutrient buying culture. I mean, it's certainly coming to India. I'm not going to say that Amazon is not now selling. Amazon is selling soil, uh, but I don't think a lot of people are buying it as of now. But the culture is due for a change. Things are going to change, you know, because, of course, the economy is also getting stronger. I mean, apart from this coronavirus thing that just happened now, apart from that, things were going good for India. And I think eventually, because people are going to, you know, uh, going to be making more money and they would be, you know, uh, more resourceful, they will eventually be able to move on to the ideas like, hey, let's try to invest in soil. Let's try to buy soil and see if that makes a difference. And I think it would make a difference because, you know, while the clay and the loam is great, uh, but I, I just feel there are certain properties, you know, uh, that that could be changed. Like it's not very loose, you know, it's not very, it's very compact. So certain properties like that. But overall, the soil works fantastically. And this is the, I mean, North India is the mecca of cannabis, right? So all of these varieties has been naturally growing here. So I could say very confidently that the soil that's in Northern India, at least in Northern India or Northwest Himalayas, is very suited for growing cannabis. And that's why most people just go ahead, you know, dig some soil and they're good to go. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes total sense, doesn't it? it you raise an interesting point, though. I would really be interested to see what some of these cultivars would end up looking like around harvest time if they were put in some kind of like American no-till soil. Because I remember my first run with that sort of soil composition and it was quite different to what I was using before and it was it was a very different outcome for the same clones. But to get back on topic, for the people who are just using the soil around them that's just free, do they try to supplement it with like basic, you know, like like basic compost they make or anything? Or is it really just planted in the soil, water only, and what you get is what you get? Um, uh, people do make compost because compost making uh, has been an integral part of uh, Indian culture. So it's something that people are readily aware of. So I've seen a lot of people use, uh, you know, uh, compost they have compost bins or they have a designated place or a pit where they you know stockpile all the leaves and you know everything so yeah that happens but again i mean the nutrient part is people are not big on nutrients like buying nutrients just like buying soil but like i said if something someone is running a commercial setup you know he's able to sell it for a fortune then of course they can afford it and they they are doing that because uh, they, they don't want to leave any stone unturned and making their weed the best in the market right and probably make more money off it but at the same time they can afford it because they have they're getting some returns out of that and at the same time there are other people you know uh, who's not interested in doing that because at the end the uh, plant grows amazing in that soil without any inputs but uh, you see a lot of cow dung being used which is just you know very inherent to in people in india so yeah i mean we we use cow dung for a lot of other things i mean we you, we, you know, like dry it up and, you know, smoke it, I mean, like burn it up. So it takes care of the mosquitoes because we, you know, we have a big mosquito problem in India, as you know. So uh, it's always around us. So we, it's only a matter of, for us, it's only a matter of time, uh, matter of looking around and, you know, finding those things and fertilizer and everything is uh, just all around us and because the cattles are also you know going around everywhere so they're taking shit and it's getting mixed in the soil so the soil seems to be really good overall so people are not really inclined towards using nutrients some people do use them but uh, it's, it's a negligible portion of the 
you know, overall community. Yeah, of course. Really, really good answer to that one. So, the Indian climate itself, you know, I know that it can get quite hot and also quite cold. How do you feel that impacts things? And for how many months of the year can you grow in, say, North India, for example? In North India, I mean, if you are at a fairly lower altitude, uh, like I am right now, I'm at near Shivalik right now at, I think, around 700 meters. Okay. So here it, it does not snow at all, but it gets really cold in the winters, but not as cold that you cannot grow the cannabis plants, right? So you can go 12 year, I'm sorry, 12 months, uh, and you can grow pretty much around the year, but there is a significant change in the light duration. I mean, it's not like equator that you have a 12 hour day all around the year. So because of that reason, then you would have to supplement light or you would have to, you know, veg your plants inside if you're going to do that towards uh, the end of the season. Let's say if I decide to, you know, grow my plants in October, after just going through my first cycle, then I would have to give them some vegetative time indoors or have to at least supplement some light outdoors in my balcony or whatever to make sure that, you know, they stay in vegetative state for a significant amount of time before they hit the flowering. So then you can, you know, eventually have something uh, on the plant. So that's one thing, I mean, uh, uh, that 12 months are available, but then you have to look at the light. The light is not really in your favor all the time, right? Another thing that happens around here in North India is that what you see these feral varieties which are growing in the flatlands, especially Punjab, Haryana, New Delhi surroundings, these plants grow all around the year like you, know, uh, like you would see in some of the equators. That means um, in springtime, some of the plants would come up, okay, and they would go on to, uh, they, they would suddenly go into flowering because the light is still less than, you know, is still relatively less but they would just kind of stretch and not really start to flower because these are long flowering varieties and they tend to have a stretch before they really start to flower. So uh, those varieties uh, will you know, stretch and then they would again go into vegetative state as the summer would hit around like end of April and May. And then they would again go into flower sometime in you know, around August then and they would finish some around like November ending. But as soon as the November end comes and those seeds, you know, fall down on the ground, I mean, they don't stay dormant like some of the places like Kashmir, where because in Kashmir, what happens is once the seed fall down, there's snowfall on them. So those plants have evolved different features in them, like some of the plants in colder places like Kashmir in higher altitudes where the snowfall happens for like three to four months, they have developed features uh, like seed dormancy, which can be chemically or physically induced, like physically induced in a way that it could have a very thick seed coat, you know, that will take a very long while to wither and eventually it'll take the time till the snow is off and it would ultimately, you know, pop out in spring. So one is that and then there's chemical dormancy, you know, I think that is caused because of the abscessic acid in the seed. And really the only way to, you know, break that is you have to take those seeds and put it in the refrigerator and, you know, mimic what would happen in what would have happened in the nature, like it would have been under the snow. So you keep it like a couple of months under uh, in the refrigerator and then you try to pop them and, and, and they pop, you know. So 
that doesn't really happen in uh, here, northern India, because here you have the varieties, they fall down on the ground and they, next week they, they're out because, you know, it's not snowing, it's not that cold that they're going to die. So you just have this perpetually seedlings coming up and plants going into flower at different stages and reverting to vegetative state. So it's a very complex picture. I mean, you have to live here and you have to go out and, you know, with a little notebook every day and just look around you. And it's not that hard to understand, but it's complex. And if somebody's going to come here for like a day or two from a different country, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to really, you know, appreciate all those little things. Yeah, certainly. There's a huge layer of complexity to it all with everything going on. I'd love to know though, you've you've spoken about how there's all these different areas geographically with India, you know, we've got like the high altitudes, the lower, some kind of in the middle and even deserts. Out of all of them, what produces the nicest end product in your experience? Okay, the, well, if you're going to talk about the nicest end product, I mean, uh, the, there could be a few ways of looking at it. So some people would say uh, bigger bud or some people would say more potent resin, right? So um, I'm, I'm going to talk in, in, in different aspects, okay? Like I'm going to say that this region or this place would produce the best of this certain characteristic. Okay, so first, if we if we begin with cold desert region, uh, a cold desert is basically what it's it's extremely cold place, and uh, you know that it doesn't rain at all, nothing at all. I mean, maybe once or twice a year, and all you see is just rock withering away in a very arid, desolate you know region. So you have some plants growing in those regions. So number one, I'm gonna put those plants right up there for their hardiness and for their survival skills. So if you're going to, you know, if, if you're going to look for a variety, you know, that has the abilities to survive in least amount of water and in marginal conditions as they are in, you know, cold desert, then that would be, you know, uh, the number one for me. Okay. But then let's talk about in terms of resin production. Okay. And when we say resin production, I'm, I'm talking about in how dense the resin coatage, uh, coating is. Okay, and whether it's confined only to the floral bracts or is it also moving on to the leaves and to the stems and to the patioles, okay, because some varieties do that. And once again, if you go to uh, cold desert regions like Niti Valley, you know, close to uh, Indo-Tibetan border <coughs> in Chamoli, those plants tend to have a very dense, uh, you know, coverage of resin, surprisingly, and uh, the trichomes are big as well. Even though the plants are really feeble and small, they have absolutely zero, uh, you know, vigor to them, and they barely look like cannabis plants, by the way. But you would find plants which have just amazing and parallel amount of resin on them. And similar is the case with Kashmir. I mean, uh, the places. So basically, what I'm trying to say here is that. If, if you go to the colder places and more drier places, places like Hindu Kush, places like Chitral in Pakistan, places like, uh, you know, Niti Valley, then you're going to encounter, uh, you know, populations which have a dense resin coating and, you know, the resin is abundant. Now, that could be because these places are higher up on the latitude, higher up on the globe and, you know, also have altitudes. So they may be exposed to, you know, a, a more intense ultraviolet radiation. So we don't understand, you know, what basically trichomes are doing or what all they're doing, at least. So if 
uh, it is to deflect, you know, UV radiation, then certainly it makes sense, you know, why those varieties would have bigger trichomes and a more dense coverage, even on the non-reproductive parts like leaves and, you know, uh, patioles of the plant. Uh, but if you're going to talk about the girth, if you're going to talk about the produce, well, it's absolutely zero in these places. You go to Kashmir and you go to places like Niti Valley, the cold desert places. And again, the cold is doing something here. The cold is somewhat like a factor that is directly influencing, you know, these changes that while the resin coating is going to be absolutely maddening on the plant, the plant is not, the plant itself is not going to produce anything. You, you may even see plants that has no bud at all. I mean, there's just a couple of floral bracts here and there and leaves coming out of them, but they're just completely smothered with resin. So that's what you see. So they're not fully complete. They have certain aspects, you know, which are really desirable to us uh, if we talk in terms of like commercial production, but they don't have all of them. They just seem to have like one or two. Okay, so then you you could move to the other extreme, and the other extreme is the uh, equatorials. When you go to the equatorials, what do you see? Uh, equatorial regions, I'm sorry. What you see is that the plants uh, produce huge buds, huge yields. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to find a plant that is not yielding a lot. But when you get closer and you try to look at the resin uh, production, it's just not even close, not even close to, you know, what you have seen in places like cold desert or uh, in places like Kashmir, you know, not even close. It's not dense, it's sparsely scattered and it's very hard, it's very hardly you see that on, you know, patios or on the uh, leaf surface. It's mostly confined to the reproductive part. And again, we don't understand, you know, what all things, you know, trichomes do. So we, we can't really say what's driving that, but at least that's what we see. And at least we can, you know, relate it to, um, you know, the environment because those results, uh, because those observations kind of hold up even if you go to different places with different cultures. So we know that it's not because of the domestication. We understand that this is something which is inherent to these varieties or inherent to this terroir that they are growing in and they've been growing in for so long. And so then what's left? What's left is in between your highlands, your uh, uh, the, the places which are, you know, very close to uh, Tropic of Cancer around like 28, 26, 29 degrees, 30, 31 degrees of north. And they also seem to have uh, a little bit of highland. So, you know, because the temperature is cold, but at the same time, it's not extremely cold. So what do you get is a beautiful mix of both of those worlds. You, you, you get good resin content, uh, I would say at least decent resin content, and, and you can find plants which more than often would produce, uh, you know, good yields. So then it only becomes a matter of, you know, looking for the right plant. I mean, and just growing enough to run into a plant that you can say, uh, I mean, you could say that, yeah, this is this is it. This is what I, uh, you know, what is good. So um, if somebody is going to find that ideal plant, then, then either he would have to take both of the extremes and, you know, cross them and just go from there, uh, or he would just have to look for these intermediate varieties from highlands of, uh, which which grow uh, around the tropic of cancer and you know have uh, seem to have best of both worlds to some extent yeah what a really awesomely detailed explanation i think our viewers will probably have to listen to that one a few times to pick out all the awesome bits of info there
have it guys part one of two done what do you think just buckets of information Era's Inc Scholar what can I say I hope you guys are getting ready for part two as always huge shout out to CT now best C bank in the game you know they got you covered hit them up you want that fire it's the only place to go Pop it biological systems hit them up they got their beneficials they got the microbial powders they got your artificial feeds. They got everything you need to keep that garden pumping, happy, and healthy. Big, big, big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Everyone in the Patreon gang, I appreciate you guys so much. Hope you're enjoying listening to this early. And we'll see you for part two, guys. I'll see you there. We'll see you. Oh,